Today's episode of State of the Game is brought to you by Audible, the internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment. For a free trial and a free audiobook download, go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash S-O-G. That's audiblepodcast.com forward slash S for state, O for of, G for game. For a free trial and free audiobook download. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 54 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. I'm Rod Murray, and on this episode, we're lucky enough to be visited by a member of golf writing royalty. Sports Illustrated's Michael Bamberger will be joining us shortly to talk about his soon-to-be-released seventh book, I believe, Men in Green. More about that in a moment, but before we welcome Michael to the show, let me bring in my co-host, as always, from the US, writer, critic, blogger, architect, etc., 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 Jeff Shackelford. Jeff, really looking forward to chatting with Michael today, a doyen of golf writing uh, of this uh, the last 15, 20 years. As am I. I'm really enjoying the new book. It's, uh, it's a sharp contrast to his last book, uh, which was a novel with Alan Shipnook, but uh, it'll be fun to hear uh, his thinking that went into doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it as well. And from here in Australia, the always fascinating commentator, columnist, and architect Mike Clayton, describing something I read last week, Clayton's as outspoken, which I think is both a nice and accurate assessment. As an avid reader, I'm guessing you've consumed plenty of my- Michael's writing over the years, and no doubt you're looking forward to chatting with Michael as well today. Yeah, right. I remember when Mark was in Europe catting before he wrote The Green Road Home, which was one of my favorite books at uh, Expose on catting in Europe and around the world in, I think, 1985, I think. But it's been a while. Mm -hmm. You're amazing, Clates. You know everybody we've ever had on the show or something about them. You never cease to amaze me. It's uh, it's fair. Do you think outspoken is a fair and accurate assessment, Clates? Are you outspoken, do you think? I don't think so, but. Just honest. Well, no, I mean, yes, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and a, a refreshing quality it is in this day and age, one must say. Uh, no, defend yourself, yeah. No, no. As Desmond Muirhead once said, he said, "Always tell the truth." He said, "Golf's got enough press agents." <laughs> yeah, what a delightful line and true as well. We mustn't chat amongst ourselves. To the man himself, as I mentioned in the opening, Michael Bamberger. He's an award-winning golf writer for Sports Illustrated. The author of seven books, the latest of which will be released during Masters Week. Among other things, Bamberger's the man who broke the Dustin Johnson suspension story last year. But his writings on golf go far deeper than just the day-to-day news of the professional tours. That's true again in his upcoming book, Men in Green Due for Release Masters Week. Michael, welcome to the show. At this stage in the life of a book, what's it like for the author? Is it excitement that it's about to be released or relief that it's finally over, for want of a better term? Well, this is what we call the calm before the calms. (laughs) There's a famous Dorothy Parker line, uh, I hate writing and I love having written. (laughs) And uh, I'm in that brief brief moment here. but it's been nice, and uh, Jeff, you're very nice to uh, get so get get into the book, and uh, it'll it'll be out in a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I, I, I hate writing. I love having written. It's an interesting relationship that authors often have, isn't it? You sort of you seem to be driven to do this stuff that you don't enjoy actually doing until it's kind of over. What a weird process. Well, Mike, have you uh, have you found something similar in your own writing life? Have I found that? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit like playing tournament golf too. I think. You hate it. You hate. Sometimes you hate doing it, but you love having done it. Yeah, I think that's true. I think there's a lot of parallels between uh, the writing life and, and the golfing life. Uh, I think the, the main one is uh, you're totally accountable for what you do. It's right there for anybody to see. And uh, now there's a, an enormous difference in that uh, the writing thing is completely subjective, and the golfing is completely objective. Uh, but uh, you know what I mean. You can tell exactly. You, another person can see exactly what you've done. Yeah. Uh, Jeff warned us, Michael, before we started today that you love to ask questions. We were only three seconds in. You'd already asked a question. He's of, a reporter. It's, you, his, it's his nature. He's look, a curious man. Exactly. And I was about to ask you about that. Has that always been something for you, Michael? I know you've been uh, a journalist all your life. You started, I think, in news before coming across to golf, always been a golfer. But has that always been part of what makes you tick? And is that the is it the inquisitor in you that leads to sort of wanting to write books and answer questions and explore things? 
Is this an opportunity for me to deflect and turn this into a question? <laughs> yes. If you, if you like, I guess, but that, it'd be nice to have an answer along with it. <laughs> no, yes. Uh, I, I, I was a newspaper bum the way I mentioned Mike Clayton was a golf bum and Jeff was maybe an architect bum. I don't know. But uh, I, I love newspapers uh, from the time I was a, uh, a kid, and I love golf as well. And uh, my life really only ever had one path, and that was uh, to keep typing. And fortunately for my wife and my kids, uh, you know, it's kept them in food and shelter because it's truly the only thing I can I can do. So I've been I was lucky to find something early that I that I love, and uh, and I'm going to write it as far as I can for as long as I can until they kick me out. This is a very slight tangent, Michael, but how do you feel about uh, the modern-day printed media, of course, is in turmoil with the development of the internet and those sorts of things? Are you are you confident about the future of journalism and writers and the written word and those things, or do you have some concerns like others do that perhaps the computer age isn't going to be quite so kind? Well, no, I, I think people will always love to read, and I think people will always love to know what's going on. And uh, how it all gets delivered really doesn't matter. Um, it might be shorter, but uh, that's okay. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm bullish on my friend Dave Anderson, who uh, Jeff, I'm sure, would know, covered uh, sports for the New York Times for, for probably 50 years, 40 years at least. Uh, he feels that writing, sports writing in particular, has never been better than it is now. So, um uh, I remain optimistic about the state of the world and the state of our writing lives because uh, to do otherwise would be uh, defeatist, and uh, I won't. I can't accept that. No, indeed. Clay, you're of a similar view, aren't you? I've heard you talk about this before, and you reckon there's never been so much great golf writing available to the golf fan as there is in this day and age. When we were kids, you just read the local newspaper. You had Peter Thompson and Peter Stone in Melbourne, Australia, but. Now you can read golf from all over the world. You could never do that before. Mm. And the only question is how, how do people get paid for it? Mm. That's the problem is you know, you know, there are lots of people who are doing it for nothing, which is no good. So it's, you know, it's the employment of golf writers that's the question, not the amount of writing there is, is it, because there's way more writing than ever before. That's no concern of the reader, I suppose, either. It just worries people like us. If <laughs> they paid to do it in the past, I wonder if we'll continue to get paid to do it in the future. Tell us a bit about the uh, about where you started with this this book that's, well, Jeff's obviously already got a preview copy, but I think it's being released the week of the Masters, the 7th of April 2015. Michael, it's called Men in Green, but I get the feeling it's not a Masters book per se. Give us a thumbnail sketch of what Men in Green, how it came to be, and I guess what it's about is probably a silly broad question, but if I could put it that way. Yeah, well, there's a... Uh... Uh, Mike and I are both admirers of a, uh, of a well, we discussed it just a minute ago, of a, uh, a book called uh, A Handful of Summers um, by Gordon Forbes. Uh, There's they're sort of an equivalent book in the U.S. called The Boys of Summer about uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers of the 50s, written by a man named Roger Kahn, who went back and visited the, uh, the great Brooklyn Dodger teams of his boyhood, uh, you know, maybe 20 years later. And uh, and that's what I have tried to do uh, here. Um, I came of golf age in the seventies, and um, uh, I think it's golf's greatest uh, single decade. Uh, it was wild. It was colorful. Uh, and uh, and my goal was to to go back and and rekindle uh, some of that early love I had for the game. And uh, uh, so I, I made a list of various people that I wanted to see, and uh, went out and saw them, and uh, and really asked them all. This, you know, in, in a manner of speaking, asked them all the same question, which any of us can ask uh, in any walk of life, which is simply, uh, when and where were you happiest? And uh, you know, it's a very difficult question to answer truthfully. Uh, Mike, did you ever know uh, Mike Donald? Uh, I've met Mike Donald. Obviously, I knew his career most. Yeah, so well, you know. Like, Mike's Mike's just a few years old. Mike Donald's just a few years older than Mike Clayton, and uh, he played the tour and he played it hard in the '80s. And he's a very close friend of mine. Um, he was the runner-up in 1990 um, to, in the uh, in the U.S. Open playoff with Carol Irwin at Medina, a playoff that went 19 holes. And uh, Mike came with me uh, as uh, as I made the rounds, and um, he added tremendously to the uh, to the scope of the whole thing because. Uh, He's sort of a pathological truth teller, and uh, and people when they're in their company, uh, they likewise uh, seek to be truthful. So whether you're going to see Arnold Palmer or Curtis Strange or a uh, old timey 
old timer caddy named uh, Dolphus Hall goes by Golf Ball in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, people just seem to be really, really open around Mike, and that that helped immeasurably in the whole thing. Michael, it's an extraordinary question to want to put to people because it's so broad, but to put to all people from the golf industry, are you hoping for an answer that came through a golf prism or is it broader than just golf and was golf a part of the answers? Were you surprised by what you found? It just strikes me as such a big thing to ask people. Yeah, that's a great question because uh, I didn't care sort of where they went with it. And by the way, I wasn't so literal with it as, as, as it might seem based on what I just said. But I didn't care where they went. So if it went to Arnold and he wanted to talk about, you know, his first love of flying, that would have been fine with me. Um, and what he, and just to continue on Arnold for a minute, what he wanted to talk about was uh, was meeting Winnie, uh, his first wife in 1954. And, and he told the story that he's told before, I'm sure, many times. But uh, he told it maybe with a certain level of, uh, of candor uh, that he hasn't before. And... Um, uh, you know, he wanted, he was 25 years old, I think, when he turned pro. He would have been 25, and uh, he had just won the U.S. Amateur, and then he played another amateur event, and he met this woman, Wendy Walser, a 19-year-old girl, really, uh, on, let's say, a, I believe, a Tuesday. On, and on that Saturday, he asked her to marry her, and, uh, and then he went off and played the tour. And, uh, I mean, he was talking about stuff that was 50-plus years old with such verve and excitement, and, you know, that's the nature of first love and true love and uh that's why the thing was exciting for me to do and to and to write up the other thing i found intriguing obviously not having read the book as jeff's obviously into reading but having just read some of the the previews this notion of finding some of the lesser known people that you found intriguing or heard about or met i suppose over the years tell us a bit about that you mentioned a caddy there you mentioned a name that i hadn't heard before tell me about some of of those people you you would probably recognize them if you saw them The, the guy i was just talking about was a a legendary caddy on the tour from the 60s, 70s, and 80s named Golf Ball. He went by Golf Ball. His name was Dolphus Hull. And, um, yeah, I'm really drawn to people like that in my life. And I, I made a list of uh, of secret legends, and Golf Ball was one of them. And Mike and I drove from Jacksonville, uh, Florida, Jackson Miss, uh, to see him. Um, and and uh, Golf Ball is a uh, black man who... He got on tour in an, in a period when virtually all the traveling tours were traveling caddies were uh, African American in the uh, in the in the in the early sixties. And he describes uh, you know eight eight guys going out from Jackson in two cars, and uh, you know and he started making he started doing well. He had Raymond Floyd early on and started making some money. And Mike says to him, you know, uh, what what what'd you do? You know, you now you're you're making some money and. Uh, you know, you just tell your parents you're you're leaving to play the, you know, go caddy on the tour, and uh, and Ball quotes his mother saying, uh, you know, don't forget to send me back some of that money, and uh, you know, and that was the driving that's the driving force for a lot of professional golf, to say the least, is uh, the chase of money, mm-hmm. and then the chase of money leads to uh, taking on this great big country of ours. Uh, and uh, so when Ball was talking about those early days on tour, even though he was flat broke all the time and beating up cars, he's describing uh, he's describing a country and a tour that to me is tremendously romantic and exciting, and uh, and it's just fun. Uh, and then Palmer, in his own way, you know, sort of expressed the same thing. So well, a lot of different sorts of people make the tour the complex organism that it is. Because of course, it's not like that in any way, shape, or form in this day and age, is it, Michael? It's a complete... No, it's not. It's not even really... Yeah, it's a mass-produced product, isn't it? No, it's not even really a tour. But, you know, when I met Mike Clayton when he was playing on the uh, the European tour and I was getting for a guy named Peter Terabainen, part of my draw to that European tour, you know, in the the, uh, Woosnam, Loft the Ball, Seve uh, heyday, was that it still really was a tour and guys traveled together and they... uh, they huddled together to figure out train rides and, and plane rides and other things, and it was it's just more, more rough and tumble and uh, and fun. I mean, does that sound about right to you, Mike? Yeah, I mean, we thought it was normal at the time, but I mean, now you you know, what was it Henrik Stenson's caddy bought a Ferrari when he won the silly thing, the FedEx Cup or whatever it was, and I mean, I mean yeah, it's beyond belief how it's changed. But we thought it was pretty good then when we played. It was just what it was. But, but I mean, the biggest change is when. 
Yeah, we, we could stop traveling with our own practice balls because the tour started to provide free range balls every week on the tour. That was a massive change. That guys kind of dumped the practice ball bag and brought a briefcase along instead. But what year, Clates? Oh, that was the that was eighty three or four or five. Yeah, I mean, Titler started to provide golf balls on the range, which was a massive change because it and stop the insanity of caddies foxing balls in the range. I mean, 30 or 40 caddies would go out there into the middle of a field and have 40 guys firing balls at them. It was a wonder that wasn't one killed every week, really. Were there injuries, Clades? That's an intriguing proposition. I mean, Steve Williams getting hit in the mouth by Lauren Roberts at the Australian one year with a full driver straight in the face. <laughs> but were there any accidental ones? No, I'm only kidding. That's a terrible thing to say. Yeah, yeah. No, terrible. Uh, soon, but it was I mean, I I'm not sure what America's like, but if the occupational health and safety... Bureau in Australia came out, they would shut the golf tournament down in a second. They would just go there and, you mean there are 40 guys out there and there are 40 guys here hitting balls at them? Well, that would be the end of that. It is an extraordinary thought, isn't it? Oh, it's completely ridiculous, yeah. really. And only 10 years before Jordan Spieth was born, Clates, which is yeah. a, a remarkable thing to think. Michael, I think what Clates is coming there taps into what you were saying. You are saying, you know, this notion that, you know, the 70s was the best decade for golf. It's, is that not about the golf so much as about, about the show that, was golf? I mean, we watch golf today. Golf's kind of the same game. You got to start at the tee and get the ball in the hole, and the lowest score wins. But all of the things that surround it are so different. Is that what made golf, in your mind, better in the in the seventies? Yeah, I mean, you know, now now Jeff is you know younger than I, and he may he may have the kind of romantic attachment to the golfers uh, uh, no. that were that were prominent <laughs> in the game when he first played. I, I don't know. I mean, we all oh, we all have yeah. it in in our own ways. I mean, Jeff, what, what what year would you first have uh, really fallen for golf? Probably uh, uh, late '80s, uh, mid to late '80s. So uh, uh, yeah, I can I can see that. I do have some. Uh, I do find some of those characters more interesting, but um, it wasn't a particular particularly romantic time in the game either. Other than the '86 Masters being the greatest moment mm-hmm. that uh, in tournament golf history, I think probably in many ways. Yeah, though, well, Michael, that'd be the changeover period. One from perhaps what you remember the '70s and what we see now of the, the money game is the '80s. I mean, you know, Greg Norman was the first yeah. massive business brand of his own, in his own right, and that was kind of the '80s and early '90s, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I, it's interesting that Jeff brings up '86 because uh, I think that's when it all changed. Actually, or that's when mm. it started to change. I think. I think the uh, the Pebble Beach tournament probably turned into the AT&T tournament right around 86, 87, not sure precisely when. Mm. Um, and the tour just got more corporate. And yeah. uh, the, the weird greatness of John Mahaffey and Hubert Green and Jerry Tate and, you know, all these other guys who, you know, uh, Tom Weisskopf, lots of guys who won one major, but were Ed Sneed who didn't win a major, but guys who were knocking around for a long time. And we're, we're not afraid to go toe to toe with Jack Nicholas and Tom Watson and Seve Ballesteros and other icons of the game. Uh, their personality came screaming through TV. And then, you know, uh, you know, some guy he didn't know would have, would be the uh, 36 hole leader, you know, in Verness or wherever it might be. And Dave Anderson or somebody would write him up uh, for the Saturday New York Times and, and you'd feel a connection to him. And then you'd watch it on Saturday, you'd watch it on Sunday. And uh, we knew a lot less in actual fact than we do today when we seem to know everything or think we do. But, uh, but in ways, they were much more, uh, they were much more lively uh, uh, people. And uh, uh, so I feel very fortunate to have come up. But now when I, met, when I said this all to Sandy Tatum, and a lot of people know that name and some won't, but he was the USGA president in the 70s, who's now in his mid-90s, still in great health, amazingly. And... Uh, you know, and I said to him, wasn't I lucky to come of age in the 70s? He said, yeah, but the 50s were better. <laughs> and I said, why? And he said, no, Nelson Hogan Sneed. I said, well, what is it about Nelson Hogan, Hogan Sneed? And here's a patrician man who grew up at Wilshire Country Club, who, you know, has been a member of Cypress Point and San Francisco Golf Club for 100 years. I said, well, what was it about those guys? And he said, they came out of the caddy yard. Uh, so, you know, we all have our own, our own thing. Well, that almost begs exactly the question I was about to ask you, Michael. Does it? Does all of this go back to you talked about the personalities coming through the TV, etc.? In a time when money was a driving force for people, and we know it was for Nelson. He wanted to buy the farm, and you know, put, had that amazing year where he won eleven times. And the whole point of that was to get enough money to buy a farm. Did we have 
different people succeeding at golf because of that motive. In in this day and age, if you haven't, you know, if you're not off plus four at the age of fifteen, you can't consider professional golf. There was none of that thinking at that time. And is that what produces more interesting characters? Well, I think that's I think that's very interesting, and and of course, uh, this is a whole thing. But you know, I think the modern equipment has allowed players to get better faster, so there's less of an apprenticeship, um, which is all fine, I suppose. Except that you don't really fall in love with these metal clubs like you did the wooden clubs. No, but more to the point, that that apprenticeship made you very interesting. You know, Mike had a long apprenticeship on the European tour and on the Australian tour before that. Apprenticeships make you interesting. You know, uh, I had a long apprenticeship in uh, in newspapers before I got on Sports Illustrated. In fact, I just I feel like literally I feel like I still am on apprenticeship. But uh, uh, that, you know that 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 makes you interesting. It makes you more interesting. I would say. Mm. It's funny, we don't often talk about equipment on the show, Michael, so it's interesting. Never. That we you... never bring up how the golf ball is uh, going too and, far and and, what, and modern equipment has stripped the game of its soul. And Oh, sorry, no, we never go there. But it, how how much impact do you think that has, Michael, on the product overall? I mean, golf has become very much an entertainment product at the professional. Is golf less entertaining in the modern age because of modern equipment than it was in the 70s? when players used to have to put the golf balls through the ring and make sure they were round before they went and played the U.S. Open. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, mean, I know you guys talk about equipment a lot, or I know that instinctively, but, uh, but, you know, I'll say this, and let's hear Mike on the same subject. When guys love their clubs, when there was a, uh, a real relationship uh, with their golf club, uh, it infected the whole game, Uh and, you know, if you had a driver you loved and you, and you treated it like a mistress in terms of how you cared for it, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, th- th- there, there, there was really nothing like it. I think that, uh, I mean, Mike, did you, did, did, you, did you find it all, making the transition from, uh, from wooden clubs to metal clubs, just your relationship with the game changed a little bit because your relationship with your own tools of your trade, trade changed a little bit? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I found, well, a friend of mine found 30, 30 or 20 uh, old McGregor drivers in America. He brought them back to Australia in a box. I got four of them. I picked out the four best ones and I took them down to Bamboogle. An old club maker restained them. It was so exciting to get them back. And I, I still play with them. They're such beautiful clubs. You pick up a medal through it, they're horrible. I mean, they're just awful souls. Yeah. I mean, they're better and the, and the ball goes further, but there's no soul. I mean, to think that Nicholas played the same three with his whole career. Now, Greg, you know, Every year, Greg Norwood would come back and you'd pull his head car off his driver. He'd have the most beautiful McGregor drivers and Seve the same. And someone would find a great sandwich and you're always hunting for clubs. But now you go to the van and these kids have got a million clubs and they're all the same. And it's just, I mean, the clubs have no soul anymore at all. And, and, and golf bags are the same. And those beautiful, beautiful old Burton golf bags in the 70s that everyone had, now they've got these horrible corporate things with double straps and things for water holders and. They're awful. It's awful. And the golf shoes are horrible. I mean, look at those classic from the 70s again, the incredibly beautiful classic foot joys with leather soles and cool colors. Oh, now come on. Now, wait, I have to draw the line here. Those (laughs) are so uncomfortable. Come on. on. You're entitled to nostalgia, but not bad taste, I think, is the message. Come on. Oh, man. Come on. I weigh five pounds each. And on a more serious note, though, Michael, do you think that what we've done here, it seems to me in the internet age, I, I, I read quite a few golf forums because I think that's where you hear golfers talk about what they do. Oh, there's far more interest. Are you still with us, Michael? Yes, right here. Okay, sorry. It seems to me there's far more interest amongst young people who play golf in the equipment itself and the tech talk about this shaft and it weighs this much and it's stepped here and it's tipped there and it's, you know, and you can do this with it and it's this flex and all the rest of it. Far more interested in that sort of stuff as a subject than necessarily the game itself and how to play it, how to shape a shot or hit a shot or, you know, the fun of of learning how to hit a flop shot with a 48-degree wedge or those sorts of things. The focus of golf seems to have changed amongst golfers generationally through the equipment. Do you think that's a fair assessment of the modern game? Yeah, I do, and and, and it's understandable. I mean, uh, you, you take a really athletic kid uh, and, you, and, you, and you give him you know, something resembling a proper grip, um, and then you put the right equipment in his hand for that kid. And, uh, and he's going to start getting results uh, very, very quickly. And, 
so they're they're right to be hyper focused on uh, on on chefs, especially. And it's I mean it's amazing how some of these people can talk about chefs. If you get these catalogs in the mail, like like I'm sure we all do, there are thirty or forty pages of chefs. How anybody can tell the difference between. I mean, I, I can't tell the difference between a, a Pinnacle and a Pro V1, so I'm not a good person to ask. But, uh, but you know, these kids who are good at golf, they, they, they can tell the difference. And uh, and they're not to be faulted for it, of course, because uh, they just, they're trying to do the best with, uh, with, what the, with where the game is right now. And unfortunately, from my view, it's not as, really, to sound like an old fuddy-duddy, but it's not nearly as beautiful as it was, but it's exciting and it's athletic and it's different and uh, and I appreciate it. But I love something earlier better. It, we we sort of talked about this, I think, on the last episode as well, Clay. So we touched on all that stuff with the clubs that you were asking Clay about. You know, falling. I mean, I think we talked about Norman having the same three wood as he said for twenty five or sort of thirty. 30 years ago. It's a different form of entertainment, isn't it? It, it? It's somewhat impressive, but it's, I don't know, it's more like car racing golf in the modern era than um, what it used to be, which is more sort of battle between personalities. Is that, the equipment plays such a big part at professional golf. Then. Yeah, right, there, there's, uh, uh, yes, I think that's right. I, I think the players, um, I really don't know if this is true, but this is my feeling. I think they're 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 coached uh, to take the personality out of it. That that personality is going to be a uh, a detriment to success. And um, I don't know why they've been coached that way, but uh, just you know, watching them play and listening to the press conference, I do often feel that that's the case. Uh, you know, especially with tremendous talents like Dustin Johnson, um, you know, who come in you know after a win, whether it was the most recent one, Doral, or any of his other uh, tour wins. And, uh, you know, go out of his way to make him seem like an uninteresting person when I, I don't, I can't imagine that he's really like that. And I'm surprised because, you know, the, you know, arguably the greatest golfer of all time, Tiger Woods, uh, played with an enormous amount of personality. Now you may like it, you may not have liked it, but this guy was rich in personality and he played, I think he played more, you know, he played extremely intelligent golf, but he also played angry, emotional golf. And, you know, as the baseball players would say, he played red-ass golf uh, more than anybody in the history of the game. And I, uh, uh, I'm surprised that the, the, the generation that's come after him uh, hasn't shown that as much. Although, having said that, I think these two young, exciting American players, Jordan Spieth and Patrick Reed, uh, who are very different personalities, but I think they are showing some of that. Yeah, absolutely. Michael, we're going to take a quick break. Jeff's going to tell us about an audible book that he's been listening to, an audio book, and we're going to have a, a chat about that. But when we come back, we're going to talk about your book because we got a bit sidetracked there. We started with your book. You got away with asking a couple of questions. We're not going to let you get away with that anymore. And when we come back, we're going to talk about your book. So we'll be back in just a moment with Michael Bamberger. Jeff Shackelford, we've come together to talk about uh, Audible, the audio book company, and of course they've got thousands of books available in all sorts of genres. Golf is our specialty, and there's one I wanted to ask you about. I play golf with a guy every week uh, at my home club here in Sydney who, as it turns out, I didn't realise, is dyslexic. I mentioned Bob Rotella to him a couple of weeks ago, and he's tracked down some stuff on YouTube. Changed his life. Are Bob Rotella's books available on Audible? Uh, they are, and, uh, and in fact, I remember this is to, uh, to date myself, I... I first listened to Bob Rotella uh, reading his his work on uh, cassette tapes <laughs> while wow. practicing golf yes um, but we've we've come a long, long way you uh, you just mentioned I looked it up and he not only are all his books on here but the he reads them which as you know uh, well maybe you don't know I'm I, I'm an audible nut and a uh, audiobook fan and I love when an author reads a book it's a huge difference the book I was going to recommend today the author does not but uh, he's a living legend, and you know, listening to Michael right now on the on the show, uh, none of Michael's books are on Audible, which is unusual because he's such an accomplished writer. And I would love to re- have Michael read one of his books, but uh, uh, because just listening to him speak, and then as I'm reading his book right now, it would be so much fun. But that said, um, so yes, yeah, so all of Rotella's books are on there, and uh, it looks like every one of them is read by him, which is great. He's a He's got a great, calming kind of uh, presence about him. But which would you recommend? Golf is ah, not a game. Yes. A perfect is the one that everybody talks about. Does that still stand up? I mean, he's he's written, I think, six or seven books in total. But that's the one everyone talks about. It's the one I've read, and it was kind of life changing. I'll be honest with you, in a yeah. few ways. Would you start with that one? 
I think so. That seems to be the one that's resonated most with people. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I, I uh, I'm trying to remember. I, I'm looking for putting out of your mind. That, what else? I think you? putting putting uh, like a genius was one that I uh, uh, I think he sort of brought back. Um, but no, you can't you can't go wrong with any of them, really. Absolutely not. Uh, that said, my uh, uh, my recommendation. Uh, this week is uh, Dan Jenkins' Unplayable Lies. This is Dan's new book. It's uh, read by J.P. Guimont, not by Dan. Um, but everybody who's heard Dan enough can kind of hear his voice, and uh, it's it's a lot of fun to listen to. I've just started. Even though I've been reading the book, I, I also, uh, since I subscribe to Audible, I get credits, and I'm having a blast with it. So it's uh, it's a lot of fun, and I, I, I hope we can get them to get uh, Michael's books on here one of these days. Absolutely. Look, anything that Dan Jenkins writes is worth reading or listening to. When is he going to stop, Shaq? Dan Jenkins Never. has been at this for, what, 70 years, I think. Never. Just like Michael, no, he won't stop, and that's why they're the great ones. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll uh, we pass it on. So, Dan Jenkins, what's Dan's latest book called? I did read about it on your Never site. Lies. Unplayable Lies, the only golf book you'll ever need. Unplayable Lies. <laughs> it's uh, five hours and 28 minutes on Audible. I can already hear Dan Jenkins just in the title. Jeff, fantastic yeah. stuff. Let's get back to Michael Bamberger. Thanks for the tips. And we're back with Michael Bamberger, author of Men in Green, a book that's going to be released in a couple of weeks' time. I promised we were going to talk about the book when we came back, Michael, but Jeff tells me he's got a question about Tiger for you we were talking about before the break. Jeff, talk well, about it's, it's It's a little bit of both. Uh, in the book, uh, early on, Michael talks about some of his bouts with uh, the yips, and I'm I'm just curious. When I read that, and knowing what a student uh, Michael is of uh, Tiger, having written a novel about him or a person sort of resembling him, uh, I'm I'm curious what you've made of all the discussion of yips uh, since Tiger's been uh, having these issues around the greens, and is it is it something that I mean I I think it's been a one of the, the the most interesting things to come along in quite a while. All these people admitting to <clears throat> it, and, and obviously you didn't write that, uh, knowing that this was going to be happening. But I'm I'm just sort of interested in your take on uh, the discussion we've been having the last few months, uh, uh, prompted by his short game. Well, I'm right there with you, Jeff. Uh, in my experience, seeing Tiger play those shots is a absolutely staggering development. I. Uh, I, I'd like to hear Mike on this subject. Uh, I've had you for a lot of guys in, in you know, professional event shooting uh, 75. Uh, I've never seen guys uh, hit success, successively uh, such poor chips uh, as we saw uh, Tiger those uh, those three tournaments. Um, Mike, Mike, in your experience, have you have you seen? And now we're talking, of course, not just about a guy shooting 75. We're talking about a guy who, for you know, 10 years more, was the greatest player. You know. Definitely the most dominant player in the game, Mike. In your experience, have you have you ever seen a guy chip the ball as bad as as Woods did those three tournaments? Uh, yeah, you remember a guy called Ozzy Moore who played in Europe and when you were there, yes. uh, Ozzy's career yes. was finished by chipping yips. He was horrendous. Peter Senior had a worse case than Ozzy and overcame them by going cross-handed. So uh, I, yeah, I've seen guys with the chipping yips. It's brutal. I mean, they can't get the ball in the green from literally anywhere. So so in. in Peter's case when he had them briefly for six months and in Ozzy's case where he had them for a long time they just resorted to putting from everywhere and then they Peter went across and overcame it Ozzy never did but so I've seen it and, and it's a brutal affliction it's horrendous I mean, it's, I mean we talk about the yips often here the, the, the driver yips the putting yips the chipping yips I mean the yips was forever putting but now it's you know you see guys like, I might play with Ian Baker Finch a couple of weeks ago and he drives the ball beautifully now but Wow, he was terrible when he lost his game. He just had the – it was low left and high right and not much in between. I heard an interesting theory posited, Clayton, sorry, Michael, by our old mate Huggy on the podcast he does with Lawrence Donigan, which is fantastic. They did an interview with Tom Callahan, which you must listen great, to. Yeah, brilliant, great. Uh, brilliant listening. But he suggested in that, Clayton, that you can probably play around the driver yips to an extent and the putting yips to an extent, but the chipping yips are fatal. If you can't chip, you cannot play golf at the high level. Uh, I, I don't know you can – well, you can – it's hard to play around any yip. I mean, it's hard to play around the yeah. driver yip and it's <laughs> – it's 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 tough to play around the putting yip too, but I mean I mean Bernard Langer found a way around it, but wow, I mean I mean any form of yip is career death really. It's brutal. 
Do you do you guys imagine that uh, if Tiger goes out for a game today at Medalist with his buddies and he's playing in a cart and it's a hundred dollar NASA, do you imagine that he has the chipping yips in that setting? I do. No, 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 no chance. You don't think? But, no, no, I do. no chance. I do. No, no chance. I do. I, 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 what do you think, Jeff? I do. I do. I think it's. Uh, I, uh, I. I have a kind of a, uh, a different theory, but I, I do think there's something going on with his hand-eye coordination that's that's maybe even beyond the yips. It's it's something else. So that's. I think it happens quite a bit, and the way he reacts. On the other hand, Clates has an interesting point because. Uh, at Torrey Pines this year, when he hit the you know first green, he missed the green, and he kind of hit this weird skull. It went up high in the air, but it was a skull. He was done. He was it just it just it was like oh god, it's back again. I thought I got rid of this kind of thing, and he you know the he started limping off the second tee. So anyway, that's Michael, it is it's complicated. Once it's in your head, Michael, surely. And I think Norman Norman made the point really saliently in an interview a couple of weeks ago, he said, can you imagine Tiger standing over the back of the 12th green at Augusta having to chip down to a front pin with the water on the other side? You cannot put out of your head, surely, what he has shown us publicly, let alone what he must have been doing privately, for the last six months. You can't play like that, surely, Michael. Yeah, I'm I'm with with Mike Clayton on this. I I imagine he goes to battles and has no problems at all and, and breaks 70... He's Tiger Woods. I imagine you know playing a course where he's comfortable and no, and no scorecard and no cameras on him. I, I imagine break seventy every time. So I mean the fact that he didn't play Bay Hill tells me that uh, there must have been a massive and unexpected moment of clarity for him, which is really hard to do in any walk of life, particularly in professional golf, where you really know deep in your heart you don't have it. And if that was true for Bay Hill, I can't imagine what really could change between now and uh, and Augusta, because the fact is he's never going to know if he's cured. I think Mike would probably agree with this until, until he plays with cameras on him and, and a scorecard and, and a scorecard pencil in his pocket. Yeah. And everybody speculates because he's the only one who knows what's going on. Really. He's the only one who can feel what's in his hands and in his head and going through his brain. I mean, we all look and watch and speculate, but no one truly knows except him. Absolutely. Jeff, I want you to ask uh, Michael some questions about the book because obviously you've got a sneak preview of it there. I don't know whether you've finished it, but you're obviously it sounds intriguing, which it's supposed to, I suppose, from the blurb, which makes you want to buy it. But it sounds like an intriguing idea for a book. How have you found it so far? And what's Michael written in there that you want to question him about? Well, it's completely fascinating on a number of levels. One, because when I got it or when, when I got the um – uh, the initial uh, galleys, I thought, oh, uh, uh, Michael's uh, put together a book of his his uh, favorite profiles, and uh, and then I've soon soon learned it's all all original and uh, a very original concept. Uh, I guess I'm very curious. First of all, how you? I, I mean, I know who your editor is, and he's a, a super editor, but I'm still amazed in this day and age with day day and age with publishing that you convinced him to let you do this how did you how did you do that well i've been lucky you know they uh uh i think I, i've got a great young editor that i would recommend to anybody who's looking to uh to write a book on any subject but especially on golf a young man named joe ferrari adler at simon and schuster and uh we're just sort of like-minded uh and uh you know i, I jeff you're asking a good question but i don't know the answer in other words I don't have a good mind for commerce. I invented a golf club that didn't make any money. I've written a number of books that haven't made any money. I've written some screenplays that I haven't been able to sell. So, you know, I'm not a good person to ask, but I knew I loved the idea of going around the country. Uh, and if I could do it with my friend Mike Donald, that would be even better. Um, and seeing some of these heroes from yesteryear. But, you know, uh, I couldn't answer why they went for it, but uh, I'm certainly glad that they did. Yeah, you know, maybe maybe they think the next one will be you know a biography of uh, Elaine Nordrigan, and that will have a bigger market. I don't know. <laughs> yes, <laughs> indeed. It says in the the prelude, Michael, you were drunk on chocolate when you came up with the idea. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, that would be definitely true. I'm not a I'm not a really heavy drinker, but uh, you know, sometimes you do get that post dinner high. I find if I eat out dinner by myself, which uh, 
you know, we all have to do in our lines of work uh, uh, more than occasionally. Not Jeff, because Jeff is socially accomplished and <laughs> oh, right. to talk to us. And popular. But uh, I, I, I really probably I should just speak for myself here. Um, but I do find that when I go out for dinner by myself, I'm much more likely to order a dessert because there is a, a modest level of depression that sets in over the whole fact that you're eating dinner by yourself and, and writing notes to yourself on a, uh, on a paper tablecloth. Uh, but in any event, uh, yes, it was a, it was a, it was a literal truth or a semi-literal truth drunk on chocolate. Yes. And is it that simple? Do you sit there by yourself and write notes on the backs of napkins that turn into book ideas and then books? It's an extraordinary thought that that's where books can come from. Well, that's, you know, that's just one of the great things about, uh, uh, I used to have an editor at, uh, at Sports Illustrated and, uh, back in the day before they invented the internet, which actually made our lives much harder, uh, you know, the writers at Sports Illustrated really didn't do all that much, just, you know, write a story every two weeks or so. And, uh, at one point my, uh, boss, uh, Jim Harry was his name, uh, said, uh, we don't really pay you to write. We pay you to think that, oh, that. That's a tremendous, you know, that was a lovely phrase that mm. was true for a brief shining moment in history. Wouldn't it be lovely if that was still the case? Mm. I saw I saw your interview actually this morning. I watched your interview with the two actors, Richard Kind and David Morse, I think, that you must have done for Sports Illustrated. It was a video thing. And uh, he, yeah. he had that great line, I, we, I'll, I'll do the acting for free, but you've got to pay me to wait <laughs> between scenes to do the waiting that, mm. that's involved in making movies. Well, that was a lovely line. It's sort of a similar, similar sort of Who, who said that? Did, did, did Rich Kind say that? Yes, yeah, that's what he said. It was, you know. Yeah, yeah, he's very witty. Well, they're they're both two uh, really fine actors and uh, and uh, good friends who are two of the most devoted golf bums uh, you could ever imagine. And uh, so we had a, we had a, we had a lot of fun. Uh, uh, one of Rich Kind's things is like when, when you play golf with you played golf with Davis Love once and something, and he says, you know, it, it's it's like hitting you know a, a button on a robot. Nice shot, Davis. <laughs> nice shot, Davis. Mm. How many times must I repeat the phrase in one round of golf? Nice shot, Davis. Well, for that, the, the point he was making, I guess, Michael, for those of us who are, you know, amateur golfers and, you know, not necessarily particularly good, it's extraordinary to see a tour pro in action up close, isn't it? I mean, the ball makes a different sound. They walk differently. Everything they do is, I think, you made the putt. When they make a four foot putt, it's different to when you make a four foot putt. There's just something about tour pros which is kind of special. That's true, and that's still very true today, despite all the things we're saying about it. I'm sure you guys talk about changing courses a lot, of course, changing equipment and changing personality. But as you were saying before, you know, the, the impulse, of course, the goal has never changed, get the ball in the hole in the fewest number of strokes possible. And the way they do that remains extremely exciting. And as you say, literally, the way they make a four-footer and the, and the rest of us do uh, the, the the way it comes off the face and the way it goes in the hole, it's different. Actually, it was you that said that. I just repeated it, but I, I'll take the yeah. credit. <laughs> I'll take the credit, guys. Jeff, I've once again hijacked well, the conversation. You had some questions about yeah, the book. Something I've, I've been curious about uh, that's, that's uh, he did not make the book, Dustin Johnson, but Michael, as you mentioned earlier, uh, uh, broke the story about his suspension. Uh, and Michael, I, I rarely question your uh, judgment. In fact, I never do. But I was curious in that when you revealed that about him, uh, you mentioned uh, there was a passing line in there about uh, uh, having affairs with player wives. And it was I was just curious, well, I'm curious on a number of levels, why you chose to do that. Um, were you trying to speak to what a, that this may actually be a more complicated individual than we realized um and what do you make of of him and everything that's uh he's just uh kind of gone through well i think uh you know what what i think is that, that dustin johnson failed three drug tests once for marijuana twice for cocaine and twice was suspended uh, from the tour. Now, if the tour doesn't want to use the word suspension, then they were forced leaves. Uh, they were not, as the tour represents it, uh, from what I understand from my reporting, voluntary leaves. Um, and uh, and I think it's uh, peculiar that the PGA Tour uh, wants to conduct its business uh, in this way. I don't think it's serving the player well. I don't think it's serving uh, it's serving the tour well. Um, and I think Dustin Johnson would be a much more interesting figure and a much more believable figure uh, if he would tell us what's going on in his life. My own personal mm. view, and I felt the exact same way about about Tigers, 
I don't care if he's no. if he, if he's doing cocaine at night. It's sort of his business, and it's really up to the law and uh, and his own performance on the golf course to keep track of it. Um, uh, hmm. But if the tour is going to have a policy by which uh, they uh, they don't allow performance-enhancing drugs, and they're going to test for them, and they're going to test for so-called recreational drugs. Well, then I think uh, they they should be more open and honest about it. Uh, I think it serves everybody well. They do, certainly it are, seems to be. Sorry, go, Jeff. They well, bring more scrutiny to themselves, aren't they, than they need yeah. to be by having the policy. <laughs> exactly. Similar. But but to, to the question of Dustin and the question Jeff raised, and I found that interesting too, Michael, when you read the story, it was almost a bit jarring. The It's not something we often read. And of course, Tiger, when the scandal broke, was all about you know sex and the women and, and the rest of it, and, that, and that's what came out. With the Dustin Johnson thing, it didn't feel necessarily like it belonged in the story. Was there a particular reason? What was you thinking with sort of revealing It's obviously well-known on tour and spoken about amongst the players and those in the inner circle, obviously knew of these rumours. What was your thinking of including that in that story, which was a brilliant story, and by the way, came off with a lot more credibility than the tour's denial of the suspension, which I'm, I must say, which is a credit to you. Yeah, I, I don't want to get into it. Whatever was in the story was in the story, and, uh, you know, we had our reasons for writing it. We're, we're, we're trying to uh, uh, convey what's going on in the person's life who was the uh, subject, so... Um, uh, we, we we thought it was relevant, and that's why it's in there. Do you like breaking news like that, or do you prefer something like you've done in this this book? Well, I, it's a great question, Jeff. Uh, 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 you know, I remember a friend of mine telling me at the time. Uh, uh, he just said that this doesn't the Dustin Johnson thing. He said this doesn't seem like your kind of story, hmm. uh, but it is. I I, I love breaking news. Uh, uh, when it's, you know, I don't love breaking news for the sake of breaking news and what constitutes breaking news on our beat is often, yeah. you know, dismal, <laughs> I think, but, uh, yeah, but you're right. Uh, but, uh, I don't like being, none of us like to be, uh, lied to. And, uh, I think when corporate interests, uh, and the desire to sell, sell, sell trumps, uh, our basic, well, insults our intelligence. Have a little start there. Uh, that annoys people, and that's when I think, uh, you know, that's when my hackles get up, and and I feel like uh, I'd like to break some news if I can. Uh, so yes, your answer question. I, I really do enjoy breaking news. It's, you know, it was probably my first love in the whole thing of, of, of being a newspaper reporter. Well, if you start at newspapers, it, it's inbred in you, it's ingrained in you, isn't it, Michael? That's your job, is to find stories. What is a great old saying is that news is something that somebody somewhere doesn't want you to know, and all the rest is just advertising. Well, I think that's very I think that's very well said. My, when, I, when I joined Sports Illustrated in 95, uh, 86, 90, I think I think it's right. Ninety five. Uh, my first my first assignment was uh, that that matter when uh, when Greg Norman. Uh, you'll all remember this one. Greg Norman accused of uh, Mark McCumber of, uh, of 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 lifting uh, a, a, you know really a little chunk of grass uh, on a putting green at the uh, Akron tournament, and uh, and Greg Norman went on to win that tournament. Uh, and then the second one was whether uh, Ben Wright uh, was being truthful or not. Uh, in this whole question of, uh, it's so boring and old now, but anyway, um, uh, comments that he made about uh, gay players on the uh, LPJ tour. And, uh, you know, in both cases, we broke some news, and it was fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. That's these... Can you imagine that, just that Norman thing with McCumber? I think he did the same thing to Ozaki in Japan, which a lot of people too is absolute magic. Can you see that happening in the modern era? I can't imagine any player calling out another player and if they believed something had happened. In the way, it's a far more sanitised environment, isn't it? And players are far more careful about speaking their mind about anything, Michael. I don't know about that. I mean, the uh, the custom, Mike can talk about this far better than I, but, you know, the custom is to do it uh, in private uh, for any number of reasons, one of which is uh, in case you're wrong. Um, you know, most of these things are in very grey areas, and uh, it's not really clear who's right and who's wrong. And... Um, uh, isn't, isn't that right, Mike? Isn't that the custom, and, and doesn't that custom uh, isn't that rooted in some sound logic? Uh, yeah, I mean, there have been you know, you might have been there when the Gordon Brand, Paul Way, Antonio Garrido cheating incident in Spain, where the two British players accused the Spanish player of moving his ball on the green, and that was done in public, and it was a 
disaster for the two producers, players who were in the right, I think, but uh, they chose the wrong city to do it, Madrid, <laughs> where Antonio was from. But, you know, I mean, I mean, players know, at least they used to know what used to go on. I know Huggy did a, he's done a confidential Q&A with a bunch of European tour players. And one of the questions, he asked 40 players, one of the questions was, have you ever seen a player cheat? And how many, out of 40, how many players said yes? 40, I would have thought. Yeah, 39. Yeah. yeah. And, so, and Huggy always makes the point, doesn't he, Clay, that we never talk about it, but that we should. A bit like the PGA Tour's non-transparency on some of the, the drug testing stuff. It, it doesn't do the game any justice to just pretend like it doesn't happen when it clearly does. Well, yeah, yeah. But well, the thing is that by nature, cheating by nature in golf, people don't know if people cheat because so much of it's only known by the player. You know, and, you know for the, all the things you see, there, there are a hundred that you don't see that you know the ball moves in the rough or the player doesn't call it or whatever happens. You know, it's a rules and a rules breach doesn't equal cheating either. Is the other thing about golf too? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, not, rule does not equal that. So. I think everyone's ever played golf, broken a rule. I know. Yeah. Yeah. The, well, uh, well, Mike, Mike, I'm sorry, can I just, just ask Mike a question here? When, uh, when Tiger's ball fell off that uh, that stick in the woods in Chicago a couple of years ago, um, now to me it was very obvious you know, that it moved. Uh, it, it was not going to affect the shot, but it moved, and the rule is you know, play the ball as it lies. It moves, it moves, it's a shot. And Mike, in your experience, what, what, what percentage of players – Without a camera there, do you think they're going to call that? I don't know. Probably, I would. I would think more than half, three quarters, probably. But there's a there's a well known story of well, not well known because actually it's not well known at all. <laughs> it's about to be. <laughs> who caddied for Jeff Ogilvie when he won the U.S. Open was caddying for a Ryder Cup player in a tournament, and the, the exact same thing happened and. To the caddy's amazement, the player didn't call it, and he went around to his hotel room that night and said, "You know, on the whole, when you moved that stick, the ball moved." And he said, "Yeah, but it didn't affect my shot. It didn't, it didn't improve the lie." And he said, "Well, it's a penalty, and you better find yourself a new caddy." <laughs> so he did. So you know, that, that, there's one example of a you know well-known player who was called out by a caddy, really. It's such a huge thing to accuse somebody of in golf, though, isn't it? Far more than any other sport. I mean, it's a stain that stays with you for life if there's been any hint of cheating uh, yeah. at all, particularly at the elite level. Um, it doesn't doesn't go away. The, the the very simple question that the prelude to your, the, the, the marketing material about your book suggests, Michael, is the question really was, was golf better back in the day? Did you come up with an answer? Well, I think the answer is uh, intensely personal. Uh and uh, you know it all depends on uh, on what year you were born and what year you uh, you fell for the game. Uh, but for me, yes, it was it was it was better in, uh, in the '70s. It was uh, it was more exciting and more fresh. And uh, but I totally welcome the idea that uh, for for you know for some gangly uh, 19-year-old kid who's way into golf now and is and is uh, looking at Jordan Spieth and. Uh, and and Patrick uh, Reed and, and and bunches of others. Um, I I love the idea that they feel the way about their players that I felt the way about mine. I think mm. that's that's how it should be. And and will the cycle continue? Will those guys in twenty five years time be sitting around saying to younger, yeah, but you never saw McElroy at his best. That's when golf <laughs> peaked. Is that? Of course they will. Well, well, uh, sure. So I guess do you, do you really start with the answer yes, and then go and write a book? To support to support the notion that of course it was better, and here's the case why, as opposed to really genuinely asking the question necessarily, because you can't really think about it any other way, can you? If if that's how you felt feel about it, then there's no point trying to convince yourself otherwise. Um, I, I mean, the, the one thing the one thing we don't know is if careers will be long in the future, like like they are now. Um, mm. I, I have my doubts. Uh, they're, they're, you know, the, the players are so gym built, mm. and the swing is so aggressive. And you can make so much money in such a short amount of time. Um, I just don't know if the careers are going to be long or if they're going to be more like NBA careers that, you know, NFL careers that average, what, four or five years is, is a lot. Um, major golf careers will be a little longer than that. But I'm not so sure if, they'll, if, if these guys are that good at 23. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure how good and how much 
desire there will be at 33. It's hard to imagine Rory McIlroy grinding over a four-footer at the US Senior Open in 2042, isn't it? Yeah. Genuinely. Yeah. You just can't see the point in it. Um, I can't imagine the Champions Tour. They must look ahead and be, have some concerns about the future of the Champions Tour, wouldn't you think, Michael? Yeah, I would. It's really, really hard to imagine. They'll have, they'll have more money than God. And, uh, yeah. you know, when... Uh, how deep can somebody go? I mean, uh, we found it with Tiger Woods. I mean, it's astonishing how long Tiger Woods was at the absolute pinnacle of the game, uh, you know, going back to his junior years, amateur years, and then his first, uh, let's call it 10 years uh, on tour. That's a tremendous uh, length of time. And uh, it is, it's hard to imagine Rory Mapper or anybody else uh, uh, doing that again. It could happen, but uh, I'd be surprised. We kind of forget that too, don't we? Like we forget how gobsmackingly good Tiger Woods was for such a long time. It just kind of set a bar and we kind of ex- have an expectation. Oh, yeah, that, you know, that, but, but as it was happening, it was extraordinary, wasn't it? It was like being part of this incredible wave, I can recall, watching and covering golf at the time, you know, around that 2000 and that sort of era. It was just extraordinary stuff. Yeah, that's that's sort of my theory on on his yips right now. You know, in a nutshell, in a sentence, I think he's just had enough, and uh, he's mm. had enough of all the blind cameras and all the rest, and it's it's showing up in some weird way of, uh, you know, I don't really want to be here, and uh, I can't bring, like, I can't really say that, and I can't even really admit that to myself, but uh, but my body's uh, telling me that mm. you know this is pontification on pontification, but. Uh, uh, you know, something's got to explain something weird, you know, as Jeff was alluding to earlier, something weird has to explain why he's doing what he's doing, mm. both the absences, both the absences and the actual misses. It is, uh, it is uh. bizarre. We're, all, we're probably almost just about uh, time to call, but yeah, I've got a ask, USGA question. I've got to ask him one thing while we have. Well, one of the things that, that we just talked about, the oscillate gate, uh, Michael gets into rules uh, and what they mean to the game in a, in a really wonderful part of the book um that i just read and uh uh but i'm curious michael you've you've been a long time um uh well you've paid attention to the usga and you've you've taken them very seriously and you talked to a lot of people like sandy tatum and you mentioned david fay in the book and david eager and i'm i just would love to know since this is state of the game uh your general take on the state of the usga uh, well, the USGA is, is uh, almost tragically boring, really. Uh, uh, they, they have such an opportunity right now. Um, I don't really understand, and you guys have probably addressed this uh, in the past, I don't understand why they don't take uh, Grow the Game as, uh, as, as a bedrock uh, of value. Um, I'm not really sure... What they're doing, they, uh, they they took a great sum of money from boxes, as we all know, and uh, and that's sort of the American way. I don't think there's any real surprise. I mean, almost every walk of life we go to the uh, the, the, the highest bidder, but uh, but you know, here we are. What almost two years later, a year and a half later, yeah. and uh, and there's no statement on what who we are and what we're going to do with the money and. Uh, you know, I don't think the game has been well served, despite all the best intentions and a lot of things lined up against them. Mainly, you know, golf going going corporate and and the manufacturers going corporate. But uh, 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 they they they've lost sight of, of some of what you know the mom and pop appeal of golf. Mm. Well, that's gone, and uh, and that happened on their watch, and that didn't have to happen. Didn't have to happen. But their heart's in the right place in a lot of ways. And when you talk to Mike Davis about water conservation, it's an yeah. unbelievably boring subject, and it's an unbelievably yeah. important one because uh, there won't be golf if we can't learn how to conserve water. So, I mean, they do a lot of important things, but their way of of connecting to their constituency is not good. And is that really the, is that really the no, danger right. and the battle for them looking forward, Michael? Is to how do they stay relevant? You, well, they, they shouldn't have any problems staying relevant because uh, you know they're they're the great university of, uh, of 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 well in our case you know American and uh, what would be American and Mexican golf uh, uh, they're the only people like a great university uh, 
that don't have a financial stake in the game. So they should be able to get on a soapbox, uh, figuratively, of course, and say, this is what we stand for. This is why the game is great. Uh, and and really, be the ult- they should be the ultimate voice in the game. But to be the ultimate voice in the game, you need someone like Bart Giamatti was in baseball. And they mm. may not be that meaningful to too many people, but I think Jeff maybe knows who it is. Yeah. And really preach the game. Like when Mike Clayton says earlier, that uh, that possibly half of the players uh, wouldn't have called that ball flying off that stick uh, on themselves. That's terribly damning, and um, because you don't have a game if not everyone is if if not everyone is strictly orthodox when it comes to following the rules, you don't have a game because you don't really know what the results are. But mm. now we can talk about this on a podcast, but it doesn't mean a whole lot when it comes from the ultimate authority figures in the game, it does mean a great deal. And one of the things that's happened here, I'm sorry, the hogging this answer. Just, no, this just, just to finish this one, but one of the things that's happened in my opinion is that, there, you know, the, the elite golfers used to have real relationships uh, with um, the hierarchy of the USJ, whether it was, you know, Tom Watson and Sandy Tatum, or whether it was, um, you know, Hogan and whomever and Nicholas and Joe die. Um, and they were conjoined, and now there's a chasm between the elite player and and the USGA, and and the elite player takes much more cues from the CEOs of various companies, most particularly uh, uh, their equipment manufacturer, their means, or whomever their main sponsor might be, and that has not served the game well. And a lot of this, like a lot of things in life, uh, you know, if you follow the money trail, you really do follow fine that money is the root of all evil, which I believe is true, but, you know, that makes it even more incumbent upon the USGA, which has taken this great sum of money from Fox, to go out there and stand for the greatness of the game so that the next time Mike's asked that question, you know, the percentage goes from 50 to .001, which is where it should be. Mm. This is a bit of a tangent, but it just the first time I ever heard this was probably a few years ago, Mike. I don't know whether it's been a long-term thing, but for the first time ever a few years ago, I heard a professional say about it was either the US Open or maybe the Australian Open, you know, there'd been some controversy. He said, well, this is what happens when you let amateurs run professional tournaments. This notion that, you know, that the amateur bodies don't deserve, they don't know what they're doing. Has that been common in the past in your, or even I suppose for you too, Clates? Have professionals always viewed the USGA, the Australian Golf Union, or Golf Australia as it is now, as as the amateurs and they're amateurish at running golf? Or is that a more recent thing? No, well, no that's the, the them and us thing. And, and it happened in Australia when there was some average setups for the Australian Open a couple of times. But, I mean, no, it, it was an unfair criticism, I think. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the New Zealand Open was a classic example. There was one guy who set the New Zealand Open up who went to the US Open every year and thought the New Zealand Open should be the US Open. It was a complete disaster on rock hard, bouncy courses with narrow fairways and high rough. But, you know, the Australians were a little better at that. But, no, there was just that natural antagonism between amateurs and pros that I'm not sure if that existed with well, I guess it existed with pros in the USGA when they would turn up at the US Open every year and bitch and moan about the golf course. And But, you know, in Australia, it was just that them and us thing, really. They might have actually had a point about the US Open for a number of years there, too. Clates might. They might have been a fair enough. Yeah, well, well, no doubt. I mean, the US Open has been a, you know, I think it's been horrible for golf, this attempt to find Ben Hogan every year when they find something completely different. They find the... Many times the guy who has the best week with the chipper and the putter. That's right, the best sixty degree wedge game for the guys. My favorite, one of my favorite lines in golf, all of golf. My when Tom Weisskopf. People say to me they'd love to play in a U.S. Open. What they mean is they'd like to be good enough because nobody wants to play in a U.S. Yeah. Open. Awesome. <laughs> and that's just fantastic. It just it, it tells the story beautifully. Whilst we could talk to you as we can with all our guests, well, we could easily talk to you for another five hours, Michael. I'm sure you've got a life to get on with. It's been fantastic of you to take some time to chat to us, and uh, really, enjoy. I hope the book goes well. And uh, I haven't read it, but Jeff's already recommended that people should uh, should go out and buy it. So congratulations on a, on a, on the book, and let's hope it goes well for you. Thanks for chatting with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And to uh, to you, of course, Shaq over there in uh, in the states. Thank you, and uh, may I thank you also for rekindling my interest in this year's Masters after our last episode. You publicly named me on your website as not having been interested enough, and now I'm excited. So I can only thank you for that. What a terrific gift that was. Thanks, mate. Well, uh, what did I do in particular to excite you? I... 
just just calling you out, did it? That helped, yeah. I made okay. me reflect and think about oh, myself and, and where I am in life and what I should be doing. And I'm, I'm I think you'll get excited when you hear the first uh, sounds of Dave uh, Loggins' uh, uh, piano. Uh, yeah, I'll get excited. You'll, you'll get misty eyed. I know you will. I'll get excited later today when I talk to Greg Norman, who's here in uh, in Sydney. Mm. Little press thing. This well, morning, hopefully, so. he'll keep all of his clothes on for yeah, you. Yeah, I'm sure he will. But no doubt, he will talk Augusta National and the Masters. Clates, great to have you aboard as always, and uh, great to get your thoughts today. Thanks for the time. Thanks, Rob. And that wraps it up for State of the Game, episode 54, which is a bit hard to believe. Hope you've enjoyed it. We're looking forward to your company when we do it all again in a couple of weeks' time here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.